Here we go. Blog Talk Radio. Hi, Cheryl. Let's get lost in a better place. Pick up a bird, travel through time and space. So much to learn, so much to see. A chance to escape reality. Open your mind and your heart. Gain new knowledge for a fresh new start. MJ Network will bring you there. So let's talk about it when life and on the air. Good morning, everyone. This is Fran Lewis on MJ Network from freezing Westchester that just stopped the ice rain and it's beautiful outside. And I am so excited because this is the book launch of. Murder on the Metro of the Capital Murders by Margaret Truman. And none other than John Land is here. I am so excited. This book was fantastic, and it weighs more than I do because I have a special copy of it. So how are you doing, <laughs> and welcome. I'm so glad you're here. I'm good. It's my first to think about this. I ju- I, this is the first one in the series that I've done. This is my first um, interview for it. So this is history. This is why I'm so excited too. It just made my We're whole day. We're making some history here. I, this, it's publication day. The book has been out I all know. of uh, ten hours. Well, they need to send me the whole thing so I had, can put it on my shelf and tell everybody, "Ha ha, I have one. You don't." I did. I did <laughs> tell them that anyway. And we've got people listening, and this is good. So this was really. This is not a standalone, is it? You're going to bring the guy back. I mean, seriously, got to bring this guy back. I love him. Well, I inherited Robert Brixton, the hero and murderer oh, on the Metro. I inherited him. So, yes, he's coming back. Um, and, um, you know, I'm looking, I'm looking for the right, uh, you know, female counterpart for him. In, in other words, um, mm-hmm. so there can be a female lead that's consistent. Yeah, I think so. And, and maybe, maybe spin it off. I mean, um, there's 31 books in this series now, the Capital Crime series that Margaret Truman conceived in the 70s. Wow. I think it goes all the way back to the 70s. And Robert Brixton, who's the hero now and who I expanded and tweaked a little bit, wasn't the only hero. But one of the interesting things is, as although Margaret Truman had a tremendous number of female readers, I hope that continues to be the case today, she never had a female lead. So, yeah, I know. You know, I'd like to do a spinoff series uh, where maybe I follow more. I'm, I'm, I'm very interested. I'm fascinated by what uh, the great Michael Connolly does with his Harry Bosch and Mickey Haller books. Since he made them half brothers, mm-hmm. they basically appear in each other's books. They do can one when when ha- when it's a, when it's a Mickey Haller book, the lawyer, the Lincoln lawyer book. Well, mm-hmm. then Harry Bosch has a smaller role. The reverse is true when it's a Harry Bosch book. Mickey Heller has a smaller role. So I think in the long term, um, I'd like to mostly – I'd like Brixton to be in every book, but maybe every other book he doesn't drive the action as much. And then th- in that way, we can bring the books out a little more often, every nine months instead of every year. Mm-hmm. Uh, not every six months. There's – a feeling in the industry that when you're doing two books in the same series, that two books a year is too much. 
That wasn't always mm-hmm. the case. Um, I, you know, I, as you know, I did Murder, She Wrote, and they've been doing two yeah. books a year for, for quite a while. But, Fran, the market is changing. The, the world of publishing is changing. It's changing right, right before our eyes. So the rule, what, what worked a few years ago or even last month, may not work as well right now, and you have to you have to change. You have to be willing to, to change on the fly and, and uh, do different things. But, but I really took to this series, um, Capital Crimes. It was very organic for me. Um, mm-hmm. It felt like me. Uh, it felt like what I've always done. And, of course, uh, who knew that when I, when I wrote a thriller about an attempted overthrow, a coup, you know, in yeah. the, you know, an overthrow of the United States government that um, when the, literally the time the book comes out, we're facing the aftermath of an insurrection. So um, it, yeah. it's interesting because um, maybe it was predictable, um, maybe going to extremes. We had seen it for so long. Maybe the inevitable upshot of of the of the Trump years was exactly what happened mm-hmm. in January 6 on January 6. Maybe it was inevitable from the beginning and somehow, you know, I inter you know, I interred that um you know, and that's where murder on the metro came from. Well, oh, it's funny that you should mention that the publishing industry changed before we get to talk about the book because on March 17th that's what we're going to talk about in the panel. Jeff Changing Bond. in the publishing industry? Uh-huh, and a whole bunch of things. And digitals for kids and how hard it is for them to work. J- uh, Tim o- O'Hara, uh, Dick Belsky, um, Jeff Bond, and I can't read the last name on here. <laughs> There's like five people, four people that are coming on to that. I, I, I just come up with things out of nowhere. You just never know what's going to happen when, when, uh-huh. I, when I want to just, yeah. I, I mean, it's like crazy, yeah. Oh, Derek McFadden, because what happened was Derek missed a show, and he said, can I make one just for him? So what can I say? Anyway, um, so there were three incidents that started this book. I got it memorized, people. The drone attack on the Israeli beach, which really upset me, the death of the vice president, and the terrorist attack on the metro. How did you create these three things? Because they're going to link together eventually. That was brilliant. People, you've got to read this well, book, seriously. Well, you know, thanks very much. Well, I had started the the book, the conception of the book, that there is something wrong in the White House that the vice president discovers and therefore has to be murdered, even though it appears to be actually appears to be a heart attack um, at first. Um, And then I found that in that very devious, ingenious way uh, using stents as a murder weapon. Uh, But um, those that part of the book was always in there. And of course, I, the original title of the book was something different. It was Murder at the Admiral's House because the mm. Admiral's House was the name for years that was referred to. That, that's what the vice president's home is referred to. And since the vice president was murdered, I thought that was great. The problem was nobody knows what the Admiral's House is. And nobody knows <laughs> if I called it Murder at One Observatory Circle, which is the official address of the vice president's residence, they wouldn't know that either. So I had this opening scene on the Metro, and it seemed to flow much better. Murder on the Metro. And it yeah. was because what I wanted to do, I take a, you know, taking a step back, Fran, the books had been phenomenally successful. 
mm-hmm. all New York Times bestsellers, and the, how they were the, they were branded with murder blank, murder in, murder at, one of those, uh, murder in, murder on, murder at, murder something. But then, for some reason, titles were changed to internship in murder, experiment in murder. They changed the branding. And something about series like this, when you think back to John D. McDonald, every, every Travis McGee story was a color. The Green Ripper, darker than amber, you know, a tan and sandy silence. Everything was a color. Um, they never stopped doing colors for John D. McDonald. So I wanted to go back to the original branding of the series. I wanted Murder on the Metro to feel really like a Margaret Truman book, um, like it was almost a throwback uh, to the way she would have done a book like this, that she would have written today. So I had these two scenes, and I obviously had the, the Metro scene. But originally I didn't have the Israeli scene. I was about 75 to 100 pages into the book when I realized something was missing. And this happens a lot when you write a thriller. And I realized Mm. I needed something more. I needed to involve, um, you know, I needed to make the book more complicated. I needed to make it more ambitious. Um, And that's where the Israeli subplot comes in. And, of course, it's kind of subterfuge because not to give too much away. The whole purpose of the drone attack in Israel is to set up the fact that to make us think, to make America think, the same people who are behind that are coming to America to launch a devastating attack against our country. But it's a false flag because the real people who are behind the devastating attack, the catastrophic attack that's coming on America are in the White House itself. And they are Mm -hmm. creating this attack as a means to secure power, to create an authoritarian regime. Does that sound familiar? Oh, yes. Uh, Let me tell you, I read how how books. Huh? This this is fantastic, let me tell you. Cheryl, you got to read this, seriously. (laughs) Well, you know, it's... I, I didn't set out to, to I, I, you know, to predict what was going to happen. Um, but yeah. the interesting thing about this era that we're in which we're living, thrillers hold up a mirror to, to the, you know, to, to pop culture and current events and reflect that mirror. What do I mean by this? The last time we had a crisis in government was Watergate. And that spawned an era of conspiratorial political thrillers led by books by Robert Ludlum and movies like Three Days of the Condor, The Parallax View, um, conspiracies, that there is there, a deep state out there. The black helicopters are coming to get you. Well, then we had Ronald Reagan and we had the, uh, you know, the Cold War got hot again. And we had Tom Clancy novels that get very popular. Um, in the wake of 9-11, after the Twin Towers were taken down, we've st- and this is still to this day, Islamic terrorists have become the bad guys. And 9-11 gave birth to great thriller writers like Vince Flynn, Brad Thor, Brad Taylor, Mark Greeny. 
They were spawned by the atmosphere of post-9-11 America. Now we're facing post-COVID America and post-Trump America, um, post-insurrection America. What are thrillers going to look like in the wake of the Trump years, the Trump debacle? Well, you can make the argument, Fran, that Murder on the Metro is actually the first post-Trump thriller, the first Trumpian kind of book. And, it, and it, so it's ahead of its time. It normally takes um, when, some, when, there's a, when, when literature mirrors current events, it obviously takes about a year to two years for the trend to kick in, for us to understand it, because people are now writing the books that will have, that are inspired by COVID and Trumpism. So we won't know what the landscape looks like in a broader sense for quite a while. But in a more narrow sense, you can read Murder on the Metro and as the first book to emerge from this era. Well, to be very honest, I won't read anything with COVID in it since I had my own issues with that horrible yeah. monster. Yeah, my whole family has it right now. Oh, my and God. Yeah, my sister-in-law just texted me for the first time in two weeks that she's alive. Thank God. Oh. And my nephew had it, and my family in Florida had it. So I want to thank the person that messed up, because everybody has it. So I will read something that, you know, posts whatever he is, but I won't read anything with COVID because it's, oh, my God. For those of you that don't know how it feels, you don't want to know. So and when I say COVID, read. when I say post-COVID, I'm not saying COVID's going to be in these books. What I don't yeah, I know, what, what's going to be interesting is what books look like as a result of that. How will writers treat the world? Um, yeah. Will people be wearing masks? I'm not talking about But also, what is going to emerge from social isolation? Is there going to be a wave of books, or are there going to be books that are more introspective, that are more – are we going to see more – more books like panic stories like Panic Room that are that or that take place in a single setting. You know, it'll be interesting to see what the trend lines are um, that 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 emerge out of this. Maybe they won't be as dramatic um, as they have been in the past. You know, following the other pop culture trends, but I have a sense they will be. We just don't know what shape that will be yet. Yeah, I know it's it's scary, but. We have Leah Gans is on the beach, Robert Brixton is on the train, and Kendra Radine is the Vice President Secret Service. How do their roles intersect, and why does Kendra think that the Vice President was killed? Well, I, I think that it's a great question, and, and I think it's all great detectives, all great investigators have hunches. And with Kendra Radine, she, the, the head of the, the vice president security detail, the first female vice president, actually went. Well, so again, here is the first female vice president in my book, and of course we have that for real in 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 the in, thank God in Washington right now in in, in Kamala Harris. Um, well, the fact is is that Rendeen senses Kendra Rendeen senses that the vice pre, there's something wrong. The vice president has been agitated, nervous, and anxious ever since she went to a meeting in the White House five weeks earlier. Something happened at that meeting which has unsettled her. So when she is when she's 
when she dies, the secret, the head of her detail begins to fear that it wasn't an accident, that this wasn't just a heart attack. Something, somebody, you know, she was murdered because going back to that meeting at the White House with the president, she had learned something or uncovered something. And the way that Brixton and Rendine connect is that they're, they're old friends. And Rendine can't, as a Secret Service agent, can't pursue an investigation like this. And she mm. also doesn't trust anybody else to do it. So she calls in somebody private, Brixton, somebody without portfolio, somebody who has the contacts, and somebody who knows where the bodies are buried because Brixton's been in D.C., for a long time. Now, Leah Gans, under her people in Mossad, come to the conclusion that there is a connection between the the, uh, the bombing on the metro that Brixton thwarts and the devastating attack on the Israeli beach that kills dozens of people. There's a connection between those two things. So Leah Gans, this former Israeli super commando. Oh, I love um, her. Oh, she's a, she's a she's a wonderful character. Um, I love her. Um, and of course, her nickname in the book that the, the, one of the famous lines in you know they're the, the Lion of Judah. That she is yeah. the lioness of Judah. Uh, so she comes to the United States, and of course, uh, she rendezvous with Brixton because he's following up what's going on from one direction. She's following it up from another, and Rendine is following it up for a third. Only by putting their sum total of their knowledge together can you get a clue as to what is going on. And that's where the fun of this book lies. It really is uh, very much like my Caitlin Strong thrillers. It's very much of a puzzle. It's it's mm-hmm. like trying to figure out how all the connections are made, and the difference between mur- between writing capital crimes and writing Caitlin Strong is the the capital crimes books are more grounded in reality. Um, I don't take as many liberties with characters uh, or 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 plot points, um, technology. Um, I, I try to stay more within the lines with, with the Capital Crime series. I try to ground them, as I said, more in reality um, than I do my other books uh, because that's what the audience expects from a political thriller. They expect what? to be entertained. They expect to be scared. They don't ex- – but they're not looking to be taken as far over the top as I take them in my Caitlin Strong books. Well, I thought I was reliving 9/11 three times. Seriously. Is that, when I, when I, 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 but I'm going to take that as a compliment. That is a compliment. Yes, it is. And since I watched, I, I didn't even realize what was happening in school. I actually watched the second tower blow up in my in the nurse's office. Oh my it was, god! It was frightening. It was frightening. Frightening. So, what does Robert Brixton learn about the bomber, and why does he become suspicious of her on the train? And how is the bomb detonated? That was really clever. I felt what, felt it explode. Well, what what um, he lost his daughter. Brixton lost his daughter in a terrorist bombing five years ago. Five years before the book starts, and he was in the restaurant with her. He sensed something was wrong, and he and he said, "We have to leave. We have to leave. We have to leave." And off they go. 
but she's behind him. You know, she didn't leave right away, and those extra few seconds cost her her life. So when he's on the Metro, it's like deja vu all over again. How could this be? And he starts to, he looks at this woman across the aisle and just senses something is wrong. Um, But she's, then in retrospect, as a professional investigator, he realizes there were inconsistencies in her behavior, in her actions, things that, that a typical terrorist would not have done. Um, he gets the sense that even as she, he was watching her, someone was watching him, as if mm. there was some kind of camera um, the, on the, this young woman's person watching him. He begins to realize she was part of a much more wide-ranging plot. She was a dupe, and Brixton will realize, will realize ultimately who she was a dupe for and how this all comes in. And by the way, when I did, I wasn't sure of all the mechanizations of the plot when I did that, when, when I wrote that scene. It, a lot of it emerged later, and that's what happens. That's why I have so much fun writing books like this. I don't know all the time, or even most of the time, What's going to happen next? So I'm kind of playing along as I'm writing the same way you're playing along when you're reading. I always tell people, if I don't know what's going to happen next as the writer, the reader can't possibly know what's going to happen next. You, you are literally in Robert Brixton, Leah Ganz's, and Kendra Rendine's shoes watching one piece, one part of the puzzle unfold. After another. That's scary. So what happens when Kendra realizes the truth and everyone except one person in the ER has disappeared, gone dark, or worse? That is really <laughs> scary. That was well, really scary. Go like, oh, my God. That's the classic. There, there are staples of the thriller genre in film and books. And one of them is there are seven people associated with something and they've all disappeared. They've all died. None of them exist anymore. They've dis- they're just gone. And I thought that this was the, a perfect opportunity to utilize that little that, that, that MacGuffin, that plot point, where Rendine can only find one. There's always going to be one, though. So she finds the one person who, didn't, who hasn't disappeared, who, who turns her on to another clue about something that happened during the operation, because we're going to find out that a week, bef- a week after the vice president's meeting with the president, she had stents put in. She has a heart condition, even though she's yeah. only in her 40s. She has a heart condition, and she had bl- some partial blockages in her arteries, so they put stents in. Well, I had decided to, she was being, I had decided that she was going to be murdered. But I didn't know how. Again, this goes to the idea that I don't know um, any more than the reader does as I'm writing. But then, and here's a little bit of a spoiler alert, but this is the fun of writing, but at the fun of reading. But for those who say I just gave everything away, there are a hundred Easter eggs like this in the book. So I'm just giving you one. In my research, I found something called a smart stent. And what a smart stent is, it's just a regular stent. But when the many times, if not inevitably, 
When you have a stent put in, eventually it fails and you have to put another one in. Eventually, there's going to be a closure again. A smart stent, when, there's a, when the artery begins to close up again, a smart stent sends a signal to a receiver, a warning, a, a red alert. Hey, we've we got to go back in there and put a new stent in, basically, right? Well... If, so, if a device can transmit a signal, it only figures, Fran, that, it, that a, the same device could be programmed to receive a signal. And now you're getting the idea of yeah, how I the vice it. president was, was murdered. And this also, see, thrillers, thrillers are, the, the, the beauty of a thriller is anything is possible in a thriller. Anything can happen. In a mystery, it, it, that's it, you know you don't go that far, but in a thriller, anything can happen. But to make anything happen, thriller writers need characters who become godlike in the sense that they can they know everything and they can explain anything. So this allowed me to invent to create that kind of character for this particular series. And these become recurring characters. So I invented this character named the Professor. And he's an old associate of Brixton, and he is an expert at making weapons of war, weapons of death. He has, whenever he, when, they, when an assassin wants to kill someone, um, when America wants to send an assassin out to murder somebody, they go to the Professor, and the Professor comes up with a way. Of course, this makes him the most dangerous man to anyone because you would never cross him because who knows what you're, the next thing you get in the mail or the next time you pick up the phone is. So yeah. that technology, needing that technology, needing someone to explain to the hero how the murder happened allowed me also to create a new character who the audience will see again in the series. You can see, Fran, that with a, with a series like this, with, when the stories are so big, um, in the cap, I'm talking about capital crimes in general, murder on the metro in specific, it allows you to really branch out and 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 grab it and grab hold of these new characters, of of inventing new characters, creating new characters to fit into the landscape of the story. I read this just before my brother-in-law got stents put in his heart. I didn't want to tell him not to do it. <laughs> I think you probably did him a favor. I, I didn't want to tell him. And then my friend my, that does my washes my hair and does my nails, she was getting them too, and I, I didn't want to tell anybody. I'm like, oh, my God. <laughs> Let, let's hope this person doesn't have a problem. So I hope they tell still us buy about the, book. the president and first lady and what yep. caused the vice president to be upset. And Kendra couldn't ask any questions about anything. I like her. You had to bring her back. She's good. Um, well, <laughs> um, there, the issue uh, – here, here I don't want to give too much away, so I'm trying to think of no, how to answer this question without, without really spoiling things. Well, just but tell about the president and the vice president. And I think I what it I is – I already mentioned the, the vice president clearly – realized something was going on from that yeah. one meeting with the president. Um, something is wrong, and she doesn't know what to do about it. But she knows something that ultimately le- leads her to be killed. That's I've always been, 
and 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 to answer your question, the, the more recent question specifically, I've always one of the greatest political thrillers ever made is the Manchurian Candidate, in which mm-hmm. it was based on a book and a brilliant film. Um, the original, I don't talk about the remake. The original film starring Lawrence Harvey and the great Frank Sinatra as the hero, um, and the villain was actually. Angela Lansbury, uh, and Angela Lansbury plays a femme fatale, plays the mother of the person who is being who is going to become a Soviet or Chinese spy, a mole deep inside the United States government. So this idea, I've I, I never heard or never read a political thriller where the first lady was the villain. And I asked myself, okay, what, how do I make, now of course many people saw Hillary Clinton that way. I am not one of them. But I think in, in the worst way Hillary Clinton is perceived by people, not by me, but by many, this would be the kind of model for the first lady who is the villain of murder on the metro um and she's a classic villain in the sense that she isn't doing it she she genuinely believes in what she's doing she genuinely believes that this is the best thing for the country that this is the best thing for the world for her to mm. for the, you know this monstrous plot where literally as many as 10 million Americans are going to be sacrificed to this cause because when you say, you know, when I, when I wrote Murder on the Metro and I knew I was doing a coup, an insurrection, that the government was going to be taken over, um, was going to become basically a dictatorship, um, one-party rule, I had to conceive a situation that made, what I, that, made that eventuality credible. I never would have imagined that People could just storm the Capitol with 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 flags and poles and you know and, and stun guns and bear spray and nearly overthrow our government, nearly destroy democracy. That never occurred to me that it could be done with a mob. So I concocted something that is much more complex, much more deadly, and much more well, not only credible but also effective in the sense that I, that if this really happened, what, if what happens in murder on the Metro really happened yet, I believe it could be the basis for one administration suspending the constitution. So there would not be an election because ultimately that's what a coup would take. The suspend, the constitution has to be thrown out. You have to find a reason to, to basically spend the Constitution and declare martial law. And you have to have the people behind you. So I concocted this catastrophic event that will be laid at the, seat, at the feet of Islamic terrorists. We're seeing now how the whole book ties together. Um, and the government suspends the Constitution, declares martial law. There is no election. And the current president and first lady stay in power. Meanwhile, we have. <laughs> you meet someone named Winter. He's scary. 
and he meets somebody named Panama. And what do they yeah. claim they can do to enlighten them? And why do they disappear? Well, them to ca- disappear. thrillers, as I mentioned before, have certain staples. And, you know, and, and this, I think, is to some extent, if you go back to Watergate, the deep throat character. The character that Woodward and Bernstein kept meeting in a parking garage, played by Hal Holbrook. Um, in the you know, who just passed away, Hal Holbrook played this character in All the President's Men. And um, it was actually an FBI agent. I believe his name was Richard Feld or something like that in, in real life. So we have characters like that who supply information to the hero. In, real, in reality, it happened in All the President's Men during the Nixon years. And here we have Panama who, again, is one of these characters who brings the hero to the next level of the story. The hero needs to get um, through another door, but the door is locked. So you need to create a new character in order to open that door and keep the suspense and the the suspense going and the pace moving. Um, This is the antidote to writer's block, Fran. And I know you have a lot of writers who listen to the show. People yep. say all the time, how do you get rid of writer's block? And my answer yeah, is, that's hard. I never get it. Because I know writer's block is that locked door. And you can't find the key. But the key is always there because the key is, in the, is to, when you get stuck, when you're at a block, when you're at a locked door, the way to open that door is to introduce a new character who gets the reader through it, who, take, uh, who, who not only takes the reader through it by the hand, but takes the hero through that door and helps the hero learn what he or she must learn in order to take the next step. There's, you know, in, in any thriller, you're going to see this all the time. When Kendra Rendine, the Secret Service agent who has begun to suspect that the vice president was murdered, needs to go to the next level, she calls a former associate, and they meet. And then the former associate learns something so deadly that, he, that he's murdered just after relaying the information to the Secret Service, to Kendra Rendine. This sounds very complex, but when you read the book, it actually flows very naturally because, the, because things are happening so quickly in Murder on the Metro. You don't really have time to think about, wait a minute, where is this character coming from? You know, why is this going? You, you don't have time to challenge what, you know, that, that I'm throwing things in out of thin air. I'm really not. But that the beauty of writing a fast-paced thriller is it moves so fast you never look back. That is true. So here we go for another interesting question because i got 20,000 more, but I don't know if I'm going to get to them. They brought Leah to the, to Langley. Why? And how does she stop an attack at the mosque? And then she decides to reach out to several countries. And I was surprised by the one that you picked, the first one. <laughs> well, she realizes, or she realizes after her meeting in Langley, because she's traveling without portfolio, much like Brixton is. Um, yeah. But she's a professional. Everyone knows who she is, you know, in this world. Um, and what she comes to realize um, is that the original attack on the Metro 
was part of something much bigger, much bigger. And there, and that takes her to uh, a mosque where a where something yeah. else has been set in place. Uh, something is going to happen in that mosque um, because again. Breadcrumbs are being left to point the finger at what is going to happen. The attack that is in the planning stages that's about to be unleashed, they want to point fingers at Islamic terrorists, radical Islamic, uh, Islamic terrorists. So Leah catches on to that trail. Basically, what thrillers are are scavenger hunts, where, where you dangle clues in front of your characters. Now, I write multi-viewpoint thrillers. Um, so there are three different scavenger hunts going on at the same time. Each of our, my three heroes is following one, is following the breadcrumbs, but they're different breadcrumbs. Leah Gans is following breadcrumbs that lead her to a mosque where um, she has, an informant has told her that this Islamic radical cell is headquartered. She realizes it's subterfuge. There is no radical Islamic cell. The radical Islamic cell that everyone is searching for doesn't exist. And that's what she, that's what's at the end of her scavenger hunt, at the end of Brixton's scavenger hunt. And of course, this is when they come together. It's, after they have, it's when they once they have all this independent knowledge, um, and sometimes they separate again, um, and then get back together a second time. Um, but the bottom line is, this is a political thrillers by their nature are very complicated. So the trick as a thriller writer is to make them as to flow so smoothly that they can, you can be complicated without being confusing. You can be cluttered without being confounding. And that's what a great thriller does. If you don't understand something in a thriller, the writer has failed. It needs to flow that naturally. It needs to have that kind of credibility. Well, that's very true. Now, for the next interesting question, my my phone is acting ridiculous. Okay, another character that I love Sister Mary Rose. Oh, my favorite. See, this is why I know what I'm doing vaguely. Yes, people. (laughs) Okay. Sister Mary Rose is 83-year-old nun. How dare they put this beautiful nun in a federal prison? They had to have a reason. And what does she do there? And why do they want to break her? They're not going to do that. She's, She's not stupid. (laughs) <laughs> well, it's, I'm so glad you brought that up because that is where this book was born. My editor, one of the best editors in, in, in publishing, he's worked with so many incredible writers. You know, I, I'm way down at the bottom of the list. He's worked with, with Jack Schaefer, who wrote Shane. He worked with uh, Richard Matheson, who wrote I Am Legend. He, wrote, he worked with John Ferris, who wrote The Fury. I mean, you name the author, and Bob Gleason at one point of his career. Bob Gleason was instrumental in getting a woman named Sister Megan Rice out of federal prison, where she was put for trespassing on federal property when she staged a protest at a nuclear facility in Tennessee. And she, you know, you, you, know, you can't just walk 
onto a nuclear facility and mm-hmm. protest, I guess, and it was a federal facility. So she was 80 years old. She spent three years in federal prison. Um, and people like Bob Gleason's support and advocacy finally got her out. She's now 90. Um, but she was the basis for Sister Mary, Al- Sister Mary Alice Rose. Sister Megan Rice. There, so I actually, there's a real character, a real person out there, um, and she has the final piece of the puzzle, and that's what makes her so important, and also what makes her mm-hmm. the person Brixton and Gans want to get to, but also the person the bad guys have to get rid of. So one of the fun scenes in the book is when Brixton busts her out of federal prison. Not that an was easy so thing. cool. Not an that easy so thing cool. to do, and I'll tell you, I actually have a friend. Um, his son plays football at Brown University. That's how I got to know him, and he's a retired ATF agent. And I called him up and said, if I wanted to break someone out of federal prison, how would I do it? And he told me. <laughs> and so uh, I don't want to mention his name. I don't want to get him in trouble. But <laughs> so, when you, so the fun thing about this book is so much of it, Fran, and this is why I love this book, so much of this book is real. What you're going to learn about the Y-12 nuclear facility in Oak Ridge, Tennessee, the Oak Ridge facility, Y-12, everything I tell you, with one exception that I had to make up a little bit, I'll get into that in a second, why this facility in Tennessee is the largest nuclear repository in the world. A hundred thousand tons of highly enriched uranium is stored there. So you've got all this uranium, enough to make oh my god, I mean bombs like you wouldn't believe. It's just right there, it's just sitting right there. I don't think a lot of people know that. <laughs> you know, not a lot of not a lot of people know. Um so what I was talking about before, what I mentioned was so much of this book is real. Well, when I had to concoct this catastrophe, um, what is the plan? What is the MacGuffin? What is the first lady? What is, it, what is the end game that's going to create the coup d'etat, the insurrection, the authoritarian regime in power mm-hmm. forever? Well, I actually contacted a... I was I was brought to a nuclear physicist, and the nuclear physicist looked at what I'd done, and he tore it apart and said this would never work. And then he goes, I love when this happens. Here's what you should – the greatest words an expert can say to a writer is, here's what you need to do instead. And that's mm. what I did. And that's exactly what I did. And it's so much fun in Murder on the Metro that – what you're reading, the, you know, the whole outlandish notion of, an, uh, of a coup d'etat, which isn't so outlandish anymore by any stretch of the imagination, is one thing. But every step the characters take and, what, and everything they uncover is based in fact. And this is the difference between a thriller that's grounded in reality, um, like the Capital Crime series, and the books I started my career writing start with Blaine McCracken, which were so over him. the top. 
and so outlandish, yeah, so outlandish, but nobody cared because that it was a different era, and those were different kind of books. They weren't necessarily grounded in reality. Um, but Capital Crimes is. Brixton is even a much more vulnerable character and a much more um, normal, a human character than Caitlin Strong. Caitlin Strong has become, in many ways, a superhero. You know, she it's like she's indestructible. She has her foibles. Like, you know, when we talked about Strong from the Heart, we talked about her her drug addiction to Vicodin from, from getting hurt. Um, so she's human and she's vulnerable, but she's capable of things that you would never see in capital crimes. You'll never see a character like Guillermo Paz from my Texas Rangers mm-hmm. series. You would never see that kind of character. In capital crimes, you would see a character like Mary Alice Rose, like the professor. We talked about him, the mysterious man in the Panama hat that Brixton calls Panama, um, who gets him through that one of those locked doors. These are staples of the thrill of the grounded the thrillers that are grounded in reality. Um, and normally thrillers that are grounded in reality, and I mean more like Daniel Silva, um, mm-hmm. more like Daniel Silva than Clive Cussler, for example. Um, but the difference with Murder on the Metro is even though it's grounded in reality, the action is still there and the body count is still really high. So people who think they're going to get more of a John Le Carre, more of a cerebral thriller, think again. Because I wrote it, so you know it's not. You know there's going to be bodies. You know there's going to be blood, and you know there's going to be a puzzle you struggle to solve. Well, before I forget, otherwise I'll get yelled at for forgetting. I don't want to. Thursday, death and tranquility. And if you're a person that likes to drink, there's a drink at the end of every chapter. Oh On the God. 22nd, Alan Zindransky is there with uh, Forgiving Stephen Redmond. It's excellent. And on the 24th, I'm crossing my fingers, they've confirmed Douglas Preston and Lincoln Child have agreed to review with, uh, an interview at 12 o'clock on February 24th for The Scorpion's Tale, I hope. On the 1st of March, Madness of Q, Gary Braithwaite. And on the third, none other than one of my favorite people, Brian Freeman, Finite. And to end the month, I'm not going to tell you the middle of the month, the end of the month of March, Philip Margolin, um, The Madness of Murder. Seriously. Unbelievable to think that I could do this well. So we have a few minutes left. How did you create, first of all, let's talk about Max Smith. Can't forget about him. How does he come into this? And at the end... Uh, how do the three original scenes, the beach, the death, and the VP, and the pro- come together? That was really interesting, too. Well, it's, it's, a, it's a great question. And w- in, when I took over Capital Crimes, it, and remember, this was the second time I've taken over a, a, a branded legacy series. I, I had also yeah. taken over Murder, She Wrote. So They should have left it that so way. I, yeah, you know, so one of the things when you take over a series, you, you know, you can make, like, I, you know, you can tweak the pace and you can tweak, some things, but you want to make sure the recurring characters stay in place. Mackenzie Smith and his wife Annabelle 
uh, are, are yeah. recurring characters in the series. In fact, I think Mackenzie Smith has even been the primary character in a few. And he's a, he's a yeah. big-scale Washington lawyer, and he's Brixton's best friend. Brixton's private – most of Brixton's um, – uh, most of Brixton's business – as an international private investigator, comes from Mackenzie Smith's law firm. So, of course, of course, friend, you know from, 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 from my books that it's never enough just to have a lot of stuff happen. Yeah. As John D. McDonald said, story is stuff happening to people we care about. Well, all that stuff that happens is pointless if we don't care about the hero. So I want to create an emotional, personal crisis for a character, or better phrase, perhaps, maybe not so much a crisis as a challenge, something they must overcome in their personal life and professional life. At the same time, they're trying to solve something that's going to save a lot of lives. Those two plots run parallel. In this case, Mackenzie Smith has tells Brixton that he's decided to downsize his law office and, mm-hmm. and basically open up a one-man shop or maybe even retire. Well, this means Brixton's out of a job. He loses his office. He loses his client. He loses his business base. So Brixton becomes a character in transition. He becomes a character facing, uh, you know, a financial and economic and business toll, you know, which I think so many people can relate to because of the pandemic. Mm-hmm. So it's, yeah. it, it was actually very present, you know, or present to, to do that as well. Um, but, so Mac comes in there, but of course, as Mac gets more and more involved, one of the fun things of this book is he realizes he can't step away. So as all the boxes are being moved out of his office in the end, he changes his mind and basically says, I'm not shuttering this law firm. And there's a great scene, not again, this doesn't give anything away, but there's a great scene in the epilogue. You asked how everything ties together. Yeah. Mac Smith calls a bunch of people and this is how powerful he is as a lawyer, to his conference room and says, I, I know everything that happened, and here's what you're going to do now, or it goes pu- or I go public. You know, I'm calling a press conference at 5 o'clock this afternoon if by then you haven't done the following. And then he gives them the marching orders, State Department, Defense Department. Um, the interesting thing is um, in, the, in the, one of the latter drafts of the book, I felt that this was so so big that it would that it had to be covered up, and some of the principles needed to go free. My uh, one of my editor, my story editor, the last person to read what I write, to make sure I've got it right, said you can't do that. People gotta pay. People have to pay for their crimes. Something mm-hmm. else we're dealing with uh, with impeachment, right? So in this case, mm-hmm. instead of covering it up. Max Smith insists that ever, that the truth come out, that the public is owed the truth of what happened, and if they don't tell the truth, he's going to tell the truth, but it will come out. Uh, so you know, I, I guess you know I haven't really talked again. This is the first interview I've done for this book, but mm-hmm. you know, I I really think there's so much of of the Trump years in this book, so much oh, yeah. catharsis for me. And maybe you felt that as you were reading it, because um, politics aside, politics doesn't matter. Donald Trump's sociopathology 
and megalomania overcomes any kind of politics. We had a raving lunatic. We had we had a villain who, you know, I hate to use the Hitler reference, but that's who we basically had in the White House. A man who would that's do nothing. Mildly. Anything it would take. If you said to Donald Trump, you can stay in power, but 20 million people have to die. What do you he think would he would say? Die. Of course. Without a doubt, he wouldn't care. Of course. Well, what, what do you so, think he said when he heard, when he heard there was a virus, because I had something last year that was similar to the COVID, and I read it, and I said, oh, my God, there's a virus coming from China. There's one in Great Britain. And they, I heard him on the news say, don't worry about it. It's the flu. I'm going to go play golf. I mean, really. Well, that, that, that's who he is. But the point is, they're subconsciously, subliminally, yeah, he's this took such a toll on me, on my psyche. Not just mine, yeah. the whole countries. How many people are medicated now because of that, because of this man? You know, just because right. literally taking, taking pills because of the anxiety he caused. I didn't take pills. I think this is how I got it out of me. I think the frustrations of, uh, and the anxiety and the hatred I, I have for this man, it became, you know, I, you know, I'm watching SNBC eight hours a day as for therapy, because otherwise I can, you know, it's like, I've got to listen. This is, I've got to find common people who feel the same way I do. So it poured out of me in murder on the Metro. Donald Trump is not in this book. No one like him is in this book, but the, but the ability of government to do terrible things, to build, not government, but power. Abs, power, absolute power corrupts absolutely. That's one of the, I think Descartes said that, and it's one of the greatest, um, or maybe it was Thomas Paine. Somebody said it like that. But um, it is one of the greatest phrases ever. And I think this whole writing murder on the Metro was cathartic for me. Because it got me, it helped get me through this in the sense that I poured out my own anxiety and my own frustration onto the page without even realizing it. Mm. But writing is therapy. And for me, in this case, it was the best therapy. That is true. Now we have one more character. We have about three minutes, but Robert and Flo. Now, now who. What, what character? Flo. Oh, great character. Flo is Robert Brixton's fiance. Uh, yeah. But you see, this is you see characters, <clears throat> foils, characters who are not the leads. Their purpose in a book like Murder on the Metro or any thriller is to bring out parts of the character of the hero, and all, as as well as develop as well as their own psyches, their own characters. In this case, we learn from Flo Combs because she's she's left Robert Brixton. They were they were together for years, and she's left him. Yeah. She's living in New York. He's living in Washington. And what we learn is the catastrophic toll his daughter's death took on him. I'm gonna I'm gonna say something honestly here because you know I don't pull punches. Yeah. I my predecessor Don Bain was a wonderful writer and a wonderful an even better man. But I don't think he exploited – when you lose a child, when you – there is nothing worse in life than losing a child. It is the absolute worst thing to go through. It's even worse when you witness 
your child's death when you're there when they're killed in an accident. And it's doubly worse when you're having lunch with them. You realize something is very, very wrong, that there's, a, that, that, that there's about to be something terrible is going to happen, yeah. and you try to get them out in time, and, and you can't. They don't listen to you, and, you're, you know, and then you get out, and you live, and they die. You I know, know I don't think saying. Donald, I think there was a, there, that doesn't, you don't, you don't get over that in, the, in one book or in one year or in one week or in one day. You never get over it. And in this book, Brixton is dealing with five years of guilt and five mm-hmm. years of pain over the death of his daughter, Janet, that he feels responsible for. He blames himself for her death and he's let himself go. He doesn't work out anymore. He drinks too much. He's too much about the Washington society life, you know, trying, telling himself, well, this is how I get clients. Um, but the, this is what, this is how, when you're grieving, you know, sometimes you let yourself go. Everybody has a different way of, of, of grief has a different way of manifesting itself with different people. So it's, Flo is a crucial character in this book because she reflects that her absence reflects the fact that Brixton is not the man he used to be. And the fun, the real fun of Murder on the Metro is watching him become that man again. And, and, and I then understand some. that. Well, and you know something is... Where in the next book, Murder at the CDC, yep. oh, goody. Brixton is back to himself and Flo is back with him. And this is emblematic. And we meet... See, I think the great fun of writing characters like Brixton, especially Brixton is, is in his late fifties. Now he's, well, he's 56. Um, mm. So he's a little younger than I am. I love writing. Like in the next book, you're going to get to know his grandson. You're going to get to get to know his surviving daughter. Um, when is it coming gonna, out? It comes Very out uh, this time, exactly one year from today. <laughs> what, when I tell you it's exactly one year from today, I, I mean it. And it is, I had so much fun writing murder at the CDC. Um, and, I, and I know we're not talking about it today, but just I, I invented a character, um, Mackenzie Smith, long lost daughter that he never knew he had. And mm. the whole book was supposed to jump off from the fact that she is murdered, murdered the CDC, and that sets off the action. So I introduced her in the book and I liked her so much I couldn't kill her. <laughs> so it's somebody else's murder at the CDC um, that, that sets, you know, that, because I just couldn't do it. I, I liked her too much. Um, you know, when George R. R. Martin, who wrote, of, who's responsible for Game of Thrones, you know, the, the, the War of Ice and Fire, um, when he wrote the book that had the Red Wedding in it, he didn't, he got to the Red Wedding scene and he skipped it because he knew that if he wrote that scene in sequence halfway through the book, he would never finish the book because it would have been too devastating for him. I cannot kill people I like in books. I actually do it in Murder on the Metro, and it was very, very hard to kill off one of those characters. Um, it was very, very difficult, but I had to do it. Um, and if I wrote that book again, I probably wouldn't. Um, again, this is what the Trump era did to me. I'm killing my heroes uh, or killing one of them anyway. Um, but again, these thrillers are grounded in reality. And in reality, um, this is the great thing about the Margaret Truman series, Capital Crimes, always grounded in reality. In reality, bad things happen. They can't be avoided. 
Well, let me tell you something. I killed off everybody in my next book. There are no people. <laughs> everybody? Cool. I, I'm very honored because Vincent Sandry gave me a, a, a blurb, and Lee Matthew Goldberg gave me a few ideas. The top, title of the book is Population Zero, A World Without People. And I actually got signed with Atmosphere Press. I'm impressed with myself. And I just hope that everybody likes it when it does come out. And I created nine worlds, uh, one without sun, one that's really cold, and I invited dead people to come back and experience life in the worlds I created. That's all I'll say about that. Wow. That's ambitious. Well, somebody's got to read it. I just added a couple of more things that Lee gave me an idea about. And the ending is, like, really weird. I created two unusual worlds. And would you like to live in any one of them, especially the one without sun? You never know. Well, I'd so, rather not live without sun. <laughs> I know. So be- before uh, we end, number two, number one, um, where can we find out more about you and your work? And when am I getting Caitlin Strong again? I've got to have it in my schedule. Uh, well, there's no no timetable for Caitlin Strong. We're, we're, there's something oh, going on I can't, I can't talk about right now, but I will oh, dear. soon. I will be able to talk about it soon. I can't talk about it now. Um, but um, you can, uh, I, you know, go you Google me, Google Murder on the Metro, go to John Land Books, J-O-N-L-A-N-D Books dot mm-hmm. com. Twit, follow me on Twitter. That's the best way. At J-O-N-D Land, at John D. Land. Land. Follow me on Facebook, but mostly Twitter because you'll find out everything um, on Twitter. Um, I, I'm loving the response to the book so far, um, the reviews, the early reviews. Um, I'm excited. Um, I had a blast writing it, and I think people are going to have a, are, going, are going to have a blast reading it. Well, they're going to have a blast when I post my review later for five stars. That's right. I haven't seen it yet. Well, you're going to see it. I hope you love it because I only thank like, you. Somebody asked me to write a review yesterday, and he said I'm going to send you some files, but I'm not going to send you the book. I said there's no way I will review a book, especially with the controversy that this was. Um, it's about a famous case that took place a long time ago. I said, if I don't read the book, I don't write the review. And I said, I only write positive reviews. And when the book gets printed, does he mean I have to send you the book? I said, that would help. And well, that I turned would him help. down. Yeah, I, I turned him down. So this is fun, I'm telling you. Um, oh, we had a good issue. Got a, you can tell my, I my had a blast was booked writing until the, I'm glad. Because you got to, you know, I'm going to have you write in one of my panels. i got so many panels coming up. And I am honored that D.P. Lyle is coming on October 4th. There's a new book, O.C. And my show's booked all the way till November. I don't know how, but yeah. So if anybody has a book out there that they want and it's coming out, you better tell me. Because it's filled up real fast. But this has been fun. And I can't wait for the next one to come out. And if you get anything in between, let me know. And, um... Yeah, we are talking about publishing and how the industry has changed on March 17th. And on May 20, 20th, I think it's May 20th, yeah, I have to look on my phone here. Yeah, Dick Belsky, oh, you're on that show, by the way, by the way, on May 20th. John Land, Alan Topol, and Stephen, um, oh, no, it's Alan Jacobson. And Stephen James were talking about how you use uh, the main character and how do you create the adversary in it and whatever else I come up with along the line. Who knows? But thank you so much. And, John, keep in touch and stay healthy. You too, you too friend. 
I, I intend to. I stay away from people in general. I haven't seen I haven't seen my family in a year and a half. I wait Some people would be happy phone. with that. Yeah, I know. You got to be safe. Let me tell you, I learned that the hard way almost. So, John, stay safe. Um, everybody, have a great day, and bye.